Welcome to the Microgreens Mastery Podcast. I'm your host, Jonah Krokmalden. Together, we'll explore the art of turning tiny seeds into a thriving microgreens empire, sharing insights, coveted secrets, and strategic wisdom from building one of Canada's largest microgreens farms. Stay tuned for thought-provoking conversations with leading figures in the world of microgreens. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we have Stein Bond from Copert Crest in the Netherlands. Copert Crest is a leader and innovator in the microgreens industry with partner farms in Japan, Korea, Turkey, and the US. Their Dutch operation alone is 10 hectares, which is almost 25 acres of microgreens production in greenhouses. These are mind-blowing numbers. We'll be talking about the importance of collaboration amongst farms, working closely with Michelin star chefs, vertical integration of seed production and supply, including a potential new seed supplier for microgreens growers, and some really fascinating innovations Copper Crest is working on in the microgreens space. Stay tuned as this episode is full of gold nuggets. Welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to have you on, and uh, I think this is going to be a really great episode, so I really look forward to it. So thanks again for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm uh, actually a bit proud to be on this podcast. Awesome. Um, so I'd love to kind of hear your your background and Copert Crest's background and how you kind of got involved in microgreens and kind of the backstory of how the company came to be. Yeah, so Copert Crest has a history that goes back to 1987, uh, 86 actually, my, uh, my birth year, by uh, Mr. Gerrit Koppert. He was always uh, innovating. Uh, something that runs in that that corporate family. And in 2002, my dad was asked to become the director of Corporate Crest. He has a long history before that, which I hope to elaborate on as well. But I was at the age of 14, 15 years old, when during the summer holidays, I would join my dad to go to Corporate Crest and work a little bit, my first work experience. And I completely fell in love with, uh, with Corporate Crest. Yeah. Awesome. And did you, did Copercrest start as a microgreen? Because were microgreens even a thing back then? So what, 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 what was it, what was the company in, in the formation in the, in the late eighties? It was multiple things. Um, it didn't start out as uh, a crest going company or a microgreen going company. Uh, a lot of expertise with radish and machinery and equipment. So I don't know exactly when, but at a certain point, they developed the growing system for daikon crash, the reddish crash we have. Because uh, garden crash, or you might call it pepper crash, is always there's something traditional about that product uh, here in, in, in Holland or in Europe. Um, but this was something else, and the, the growing method was different as well. So the technology at the time developed is still the technology we're using today. Hmm. Interesting. Oh, that's cool. I, I didn't. I didn't. I, I never thought about garden cress. Um, uh, sometimes called curly cress. Here, it's not that yeah. popular uh, in North America. Actually, I grew it a few times early on, and it just never, never really caught on. No one really wanted to to buy it, so there wasn't really much of a market here. But it sounds like in the Netherlands, there's a pretty big market for it. Well, and actually, it's um, it's a very underestimated uh, microgreen. If you ask me, there's a lot of nutritional values in. Uh, the curly crest, let's call it, get that or the garden crest. But actually, you can find it in almost every retail store, um, in, in at least in the Netherlands and in, in Germany as well, uh, and further down east, um, because it's very traditional. Actually, it's a bit old-fashioned 
if I look at the sales for that product, that's the only product we do in retail, it's just a small part, is really still a lot of traditional sales. Um, and it didn't really catch on with, uh, with chefs. Yeah, yeah, no, that, uh, that makes sense. And, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. So, so it, just based on um, your customers, it sounds like most of them are chefs or distributors for restaurants. So um, I'd love to hear more about kind of the, the customer breakdown and as well as how large you guys are, because I think some listeners may not realize how uh, substantial your operation really is. So I'd love to hear more about your customers and the size of the operation. Well, the, I think that the customers, they, it started really the high-end uh, gastronomy. Uh, so the business plan was literally, there's this nice guide we have, which shows all the Michelin stars, ranked from three, two to one. Uh, so that was the, the first target audience that my dad was hunting after when, when he uh, stepped into Coppercrest, knowing that they are very influential. And if you can convince a chef from the south of Spain that they want to have the Coppercrest product, if you have a Michelin star, it makes it easier for you to get the products that you want. So uh, everybody was very eager to supply these chefs. So creating a demand over the market towards the, the high-end end users, I think still to today is the best innovation we did within Coppercrest. Whereas most of horticulture is just pushing products into the channels, we created the demand for the products that we're selling today. Uh, so it was really pioneering at the time. Size-wise, um, it's difficult to say how many end users we supply because we, own, we only have 100 customers, which are the Dutch traders. And the Dutch traders are well known for being able to export all across Europe and beyond. So I know what we sell to those first 100 customers and wherever they sell it to is completely up to them. So I've, I've, I've been shocked many times already in the past that I, we found our products in the south of Italy when we were on a holiday, which makes us, of course, very proud, but also very curious on how these products actually ended up there and who is, who is moving those products around. Now we know more about the market, so we have a better insight, but I'm confident that during Christmas week, we'll, we'll serve about 80,000 restaurants with, uh, with our products. Wow. <laughs> which is crazy. It was just that, crazy. That, that, it was not, was not the intent of Coppercrest at all. Um, I think we have, we had a right attitude going into this market, but we never underestimated. We never thought we would um, reach so many end users. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's incredible. That like, and you all, and that, that's just the farm in the Netherlands, right? You also have farms in other, other places as well. Are those owned? by the, the, the head, the like Cobra Crest no, or are we, they kind we of have, franchise? We have several partnerships. Um, so we have, we have friends that, that grow Cobra Crest and market Cobra Crest. So we have a partner in Japan who is actually, I think three times the size of Cobra Crest is in Holland, but they're mainly wow. focused on consumer. Um, and they have a lot of knowledge. So the partnership is, is always two ways. So we bring knowledge, we bring a brand, we bring our seeds as well. Um, but then we get to play around in those markets and learn from that. And there's a lot that we've learned from the Japanese. Um, several years ago, we started in uh, Korea, Seoul. The first partnership was in New York, Long Island, where I actually spent, uh, I lived there for a year as well. I still have a big heart for, uh, for that. So I know a little bit about the U.S. market, but this was my, 10 years ago, I guess, I, I lived there. Um, of course, still very connected, but... Um, 
And I saw also the difference between microgreens and cress in Europe, uh, the way it's produced over there, the way the market is, and the way it is in Holland. Um, and just to drop them, because I'm very proud to have them as partners. We have a partnership in Turkey as well. Oh, cool. Uh, and we, we're starting now something in um, uh, Brazil. Um, so that's, yeah, it's exciting to see how, how cress are being perceived in all these different cultures. Uh, and I went to all the places in the world where we had big ambitions, but never really got things started off the ground. Uh, as you do with uh, when you're hunting for uh, for partners. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and and it's crazy to see how much the market has changed. Um, I was in Peru in April, and I went to you know some uh, some higher end restaurants there, and almost every restaurant we went to that was for, it was for Westerners, you know, it wasn't for locals, but they all right. had microgreens, and they all yeah. had beautiful microgreens. And you would like I wouldn't think in my mind like you know a place like Peru would have you know, market for microgreens in, in a country like that, but, but they did. And so it, it's really starting to spread worldwide now where it really started when I started, ten, I started 10 years ago and it was much more niche. It was starting to become like a retail product that people would actually consume, not just uh, on the, on the food service side, um, but it's really exploded in, in this last decade. And I'm excited to see that continue because there's, there's so many health benefits and um, you know, so much variety as, as I'm excited to get into, into that with you, because I think you guys not just leading on the front of, of creating the market for microgreens or crests, but also, uh, the amount of variety and innovation you guys are doing, I think is really, really cool. So maybe we could just touch on that and go, go from there and see, um, low more about the variety you grow, how, like the growing process, I'm guessing there's a lot of automation in that as well, given how large you guys are. So, um, yeah, just generally production in general, how you guys grow, what varieties you're growing and uh, some of the innovations you guys are doing in the space. Oh, big questions though. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, then going back to, to, um, the origin of the company was, um, Gerrit actually has a brother, uh, who's very technical. So when we stepped into Coppercrest, there was already the, the growing method and also the, the, the machinery, uh, there. Of course, this got bigger and more uh, automated, but the basis was still the same. So we grow on cellulose, which is a paper pulp. Uh, we get big blocks in there, like industrial sized blocks, uh, which we then mix with the water and the fertilized water if needed. And we pour that into the, the trays we have. And the trays are already the punnets in which we sell the products. Um, and we only produce living microgreens. I think that's also a bit different than what you see uh, Love in the US. Uh, our partner in the US still grows living as well as uh, cut microgreens, but the living is really the what things it makes it unique, also from a shelf life point of view and nutritional value. Um, we grow them on tables. Uh, of course, in the beginning we moved these tables around, um, and we took the trays from the from the machinery on the table. All of that is now automated, but the basis is still the same. Tables go into the greenhouse. There's a lot of innovation in our greenhouse. Uh, I think the biggest part of our greenhouse is climate neutral. So we don't use any fossil fuel anymore. Uh, wow. And we're, we're hoping to be all off fossil fuel by 2025. Um, we store the products cold when they're ready for harvest. They need to cool down before we bring them into uh, the supply chain. We have got a big order picking team because we have, I think, about 70 different products now. Uh, but of course, all in different types of packaging. Um, so you can multiply it by uh, by three. 
Um, and we deliver within most of the time within half hour or hour. So we get the orders in early in the morning and then the team starts uh, gathering the orders and uh, the packing also starts at that time. So we keep minimal inventory and then um, yeah, we supply on a daily basis uh, all our customers. And we really, you have to know the Westland to understand it, but the Westland is really a densely horticulture population where 80% of all the Dutch export traders in uh, produce are. So we have the luxury that our trucks, they only drive half hour max from our facility. Wow. Half of our customers come and pick up. So logistically, we are very blessed to be in this region. Well, it's not a coincidence that this business yeah. is in the region uh, now. Yeah. So how how far is the facility from Amsterdam? Uh, an hour. Okay. Okay. An hour still. Yeah. Okay. That's a small country, yeah. The, the yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. I still, I still haven't been. I've, I've always wanted to to go just to see the the innovation in in agriculture. It's it's one of the places that that I look forward to visiting in the in the next few years. Um, but I've always been amazed at the innovation in uh, just in general in agriculture in in the Dutch society. It seems like it, it's it's very rooted in uh, in being self sufficient in food production. And it's crazy because it's such a, it, it's it's more north than where I am in Canada. Um, yeah. And you guys are producing so much more food, um, which is just very, very impressive, uh, given especially given the climate during the the winter months. Um, but but to, because the Dutch, we we are the the number two food exporter in the world, uh, next to the U.S. Oh, interesting. It's quite silly because we're such a small country, but it have, mainly has to do with our harbors. So I don't take that much pride in that statistic because we are actually the biggest exporter of oranges. Well, you don't have to visit Holland to know that we don't grow any oranges ourselves. So because a lot of produce comes in through our harbors uh, and we export them as well. But what I do take a lot of pride in is that and when it comes to horticulture, uh, we are the, the leaders of that, that movement. There's so much knowledge here. We have all our um, uh, partners, like technical suppliers, they're all in this region. So the innovation in this region is so... It's, they call it like the... the Silicon Valley of horticulture is, is what you find here in Westland. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, uh, I totally under, understand that. And, uh, yeah, like it, it's just interesting how the, how the climate is not the most conducive year for year round production yet. You've guys have found a way to make that, that work. Cause you know, in, in our climate, even for, from, for microgreens, um, the reason I went indoors in a vertical facility was cause the, the consistency of the product is is without having a lot of technology in place very often very expensive technology it'd be very difficult to replicate a year-round consistent environment so just going vertical just made made sense to me because then you can just rent a warehouse space or even even greenhouse space in um i'm in toronto which is a pretty big city it's almost impossible to to find you have to go at least three four hours away to get relatively inexpensive greenhouse space so it just wasn't practical but you, you just just back to production you start with um growing it under under lights or do you is it start in a greenhouse uh when they're when they're so in we, germination we, we grow them on tables we put them underneath the covers uh to keep them in the dark and then determining of course which variety is we open up the covers we don't move the tables that much we'll park them until they're finished and then of course we put the lights uh if needed we put the lights on there's some days during the year where we have enough light here in Holland, uh, but now, of course, now winter time is uh, is coming. Uh, we do have the uh, the lights on. Yeah, 
Yeah. And, and how large is the greenhouse uh, in production space or just the size of the greenhouse that you guys are growing? I'm guessing there's multiple ones at this point. Yeah, we have, they're all, they're all in, um, on walking distance now. I think in total we have about 10 hectares, uh, not acres, but hectares. But then it's also good to know that we grow edible leaves, edible flowers, uh, all the other varieties as well. So I think it's about 50-50 when it comes to, uh, to space. Yeah. 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 In terms of, in terms of, uh, like crest microgreens and edible flowers, baby leaves. Space wise. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, wow. That's great. So the, 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 have you noticed a big change in the, uh, edible flowers market? Cause the more farms I've talked to, the more I realize there's more and more farms are growing edible flowers. It seems to be the next, um, the next big move in this kind of niche of, uh, you know, high end, uh, food service products. Have you noticed a big shift in, in the demand for edible flowers over the last few years? Yeah, I do. I do think there's a a big uh, shift in it. Um, We've started already a long time ago with, with the edible flowers as well. Uh, I actually started, we actually started with that in, um, in New York was a bigger demand in the U S for edible flowers at that time than there was in Holland. Hmm. Um, now I think that the, the Europe kind of catched on already, or maybe they were selling it already, but we're not, we were not in that market. Um, but I do believe that the people that grow microgreens all have a tendency to go to fast growing crops or fast growing cycles. And, and pansies, for example, is a, is a crop that will give you new flowers every day. So there's, there's, there's a similarity in that sense. Uh, mm. I think growing specialties is more complicated than it is with growing, uh, the microgreens. Uh, or complicated. It's it's a different ball game. Let's let's call yeah. it like that. Um, but it's different than we have a lot of people here growing pansies, but that's just for ornamental sales. Uh, and then you grow the plant completely different than you would if you just wanted to to give flowers. Um, so there's a lot to 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 learn from from both sides. I think in that uh, in that case, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I I always think of microgreens as like. There, there is a lot of, there can be a lot of complexity to them, especially the more varieties you grow, um, which I'm excited to, to get into that next. Uh, but when you, when you consider like the, the life cycle of a microgreen, it's, you know, somewhere between seven and 28 days, generally closer to that seven to 14 day mark is where most of them are grown uh, commercially. So you think about that and, and once you have a recipe, you can just kind of repeat that with yeah. and then and then you can know what the yield is but with with flowers you have to wait till the flower opens it's got to be at the right stage of open if it's too late then it's not going to the shelf life is not going to be good there's i'm guessing those have to be hand harvested i don't know if that's that's the case but um that would be i'm hoping at one point that would be automated but uh that that's a pretty like compared to automating having a harvester to cut microgreens having some sort of harvesting machine to pick edible flowers would take a lot more precision. So it, it's a lot harder of a growing process, which is why I think less people have gotten into it. But what I've seen is it seems that there's more and more demand for those those products, at least in North America. And it sounds like in, in Europe as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in terms of variety, you said you grow 70 different varieties, um, which is just mind blowing uh, to think about because there's most farms, uh, you know, don't even grow even market gardens don't even grow 70 varieties of vegetables, let alone right. 70 varieties of microgreens. So that's very impressive how much to, variety. To clarify, I think 35 of them are, are microgreens and the other um, 25, 30 are the, the edible leaves, edible flowers varieties. Got so it, they're not all, um, yeah. Okay, okay. 
but even even even, even still, that's still an insane amount of variety. So, and also, I've been on your website, and there's a lot of unique varieties that you grow that I've just never seen anywhere. So I'd love to delve in like how you guys develop these products. Do you use the same technique of going to these Michelin star, star chefs, seeing what they want, create the demand through that route? Is that still the process? And what are, what are some of these unique varieties that, um, that you are growing? Yeah. Uh, well, it's difficult for me to say what is, what is unique, but, but if I look at the, um, I have to go a little bit back in time. So before Rob, um, started at Coppercrest, he was working for a seed company and he was doing a lot of the exports. So he was always in countries like Japan, Korea, India. Uh, he spent a lot of time abroad and he has three big passions. One of course was seeds because that was the business. Two was traveling and number three was cooking. And those three things are very crucial still to, to what makes Coppercrest today. So he came back with products, which were commodities in uh, Japan. You would find them in every market. There was not something special like shiso, shiso leaves, mm -hmm. the perilla. Uh, the Japanese, they eat these big leaves. Every time they have raw fish, they eat these leaves because they're actually, um, it's like reversed medicine where we in our Western society, if we want to have medicines in our cabinets where the Japanese ignore, because you cannot always guarantee the quality of fish. So therefore, when you eat shiso leaves with that, the perilla leaves, uh, that might help you calm down your stomach in case the food was bad. So it's wow. like uh, um, preventing instead of um, uh, treating it. Hmm. And, and actually, the Japanese have so much inspiration because a lot of the edible flowers were used on uh, raw fish. Because if you would see raw fish and it would be out at the cooler for several hours, you would not be able to see it from the fish. But if a leaf was on that fish and the leaf was wilting, uh, then you would know not to touch that fish. Wow. So there's a lot of communication and a lot of, it's still fascinating to me is the, the functional food aspect that the Japanese have, which, which we lack so much in our, our Western society. Uh, I can think I can speak for Europe and, uh, and the States as well. Yeah, um, no, for sure. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. And, that is fascinating. Yeah, well, that's we love st telling stories at Copper Crest because stories is what 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 keep they stay in our mind. So that's kind of also how I grew up. So every product we have has some sort of story. Um, so when you talk about uh, we call it Afila Crest, or you would call it pea shoots, the pea shoots or the snow peas. I think snow peas is is also a common name, right? Yeah, uh, these were the first products that would grow out of the snow in Korea. So when they have a harsh winter, the first thing they were able to eat was these snow peas that would come out of the snow because it's one of the seeds that can actually germinate uh, when it's very cold. So wow. the, value, the value, the cultural relevance of snow peas is so amazing for people that have, that have traveled, that have seen that, to understand that and to bring that back to, to our greenhouse and then grow these varieties uh, as a cress. So that's why um, what is unique, some, some things are unique or very common in other countries. So of course, there's a few products that, that we take a lot of pride in, um, but it's, it's, we, we, we didn't invent anything. We took plants out of nature and we tried to cultivate them in the size which fits as a microgreen or cress. 
we have some microgreens which they actually want to be a tree. They're 12 meter high trees, but we decided to sell them just as small microgreens. Interesting. Okay, what, what variety is that, if you don't mind me asking? So we have the um, Tahoon. I actually have a small box next to me here. You probably have a different name for this one. Or I'm uh, showing you something that you haven't seen before. I, well, it's hard to see that the, the quality is a little bit. Oh, is that Perslane? No, no. No. Yeah, I don't know what that is. I don't think I've seen that. That already makes me very proud, of course, <laughs> to have something that you, as a microgreen consultant, hasn't seen yet. Um, no, it's um, it's a Tahoon, and it's actually a very high flavorful, uh, nutty. Uh, this wants to be a 12 meter high tree. It grows wow. in the Himalayas, and it's actually one of the few products that we have to. Um, we get the seeds from the trees. Normally, we get the seeds at a very young age, at the age of one or two, but they actually come from a tree, and has a very strong nutty flavor. It goes very well with the weather we're having today. Um, so I think that's one of the unique products we have. You can also grow it a little bit bigger than you get the, the bigger leaves that sometimes uh, they would use for, for bouillons or soups. But I think that's one of the unique ones we have. Interesting. How fat, like usually trees take, at least, I don't know, in, 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 uh, in my North American climate, like a tree need like a winterized period or, or stratification to germinate. So how, how does that work with, with, uh, that variety, does, does it need some sort of cold temperature to germinate or is it you just plant it and it's like a, just like a broccoli, it'll just germinate in a few days? Not like a broccoli, uh, definitely it's longer uh, underneath um, the, the cloth, so to say. It's, um, and it has a dormant time, but it, the seeds need to be uh, inactive for a while. Don't hold okay. me up to the specifics, but yeah, it's not yeah. something you can harvest and sow the next, uh, the next week. Yeah, um, yeah. I think the, the seeds fall down, winter comes over it. So that's what we kind of replicate when we store the seeds. And after that, they are, uh, you can uh, start sowing with them. Got it. When, when you showed me that, one thing I was just thinking of, I don't know if anyone's ever done this or if it's even realistic or possible, but Moringa is a really popular uh, tree that is grown in the tropics for, for the leaves. I've actually never had fresh Moringa leaves. I've only had dried, yeah. but uh, I wonder if that would work well as a microgreen because it's kind of like a very unique at least the mature leaves um, are very unique. And I believe it's a legume, so it should be relatively fast growing. We, we tried it, um, but we were not able to make it uh, tasty. Let's call it that. Yeah, uh, okay. There's a lot of health benefits uh, claimed to, to, to the product, to the tree. Um, so then we're always interested in, in growing that. But this one we were not able to make tasty at least because that's a challenge to have trees which, are, when, which we know from mature, they're only relevant when they're mature. Yeah. Um, they're it's difficult to grow them into grass. So every time, that's also why we have some of these specialties because we gr try to grow something in a small variety so we can call it a microgreen and it can fit in our existing uh, system. But then reality hits in and then it's not tasty when it's young. So you have to grow it uh, and sell the flowers with the leaves at a mature age or... Um... No, yeah, we cannot control sure. anything, everything that, uh, that nature has given us. Yeah, yeah. There, there's the that just it just opened up a whole new uh, uh, window or door to me. I'm just thinking about all the different tree species that could be edible and could be grown as as a microgreen. Now, of course, I think most trees are going to be a lot slower to germinate because they're not necessarily yeah. like mm -hmm. uh, you know an annual. Um, their 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 game is the long game, not not one year survival. Um, so it's a whole different uh, beast there. But I think it's just it's, it's like out of the box thinking on on the opportunity with microgreens and cress. 
um, to, to grow varieties like that. So I'm guessing you guys must have a team that's kind of always experimenting, always trying to find new things to, to potentially grow. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we, we do have also a commercial team that, that travel quite a lot. So I think every country in, in Europe, or at least most countries in Europe, we are uh, represented. So they also talked a lot to, to chefs, of course. So we get inspiration from all these different angles and our partners, of course. Um, I think we have tried most of the obvious things, but the, the, the challenge is to always still look for that, that one thing, which is, which is unique. Um, yeah. that's, that's still the goal. Of course, there's some varieties that I would just love to add to our current, uh, product portfolio because it, it will help chefs out, but we're always looking for new innovations, things which are, um, something that people did not expect from us, for example. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I, me personally, I would, that sounds like a dream job is like tra travel, uh, you know, travel Europe or travel the world and try to find new unique things that maybe are more common in some of these countries and bring them back and, and popularize them. I think that's, that sounds like a very rewarding and very fun job. It's like being like a, explore in a new world sort of thing. And it, it sounds yeah. very, uh, very, very fun. Um, we're very conscious that the world of, of edible plants is, is bigger than any, any of us can imagine. Um, so yeah, there's still a lot of work to be done to finding out these plants and finding a way to grow them properly. Um, not right with you. That will be a dream job that, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So in terms of, um, like, so, so you have the 35 varieties of, uh, microgreens or crests, and then you have about the same in uh, flowers and, um, and baby greens. So out of those two kind of categories, which ones would be the most popular or ones that, that you guys sell the most volume of? Yeah, so crest is definitely the, um, the biggest variety we have. It's what we started with. There's some specialties coming up now, uh, also in popularity, um, but there's just the, the legacy of these crests are still very, very big. So um, we do see a big rise in demand for, uh, we call it the salad pea, uh, or the snow pea or the pea shoots or, uh, fries you would call it. I think that's been more popular in the U S than it was in, um, in Europe. We started with it 10 years ago now, and it's yeah. been growing ever, ever since, uh, of course we had the Afila, but never that, that bigger variety. Which we see now that a lot of restaurants they are struggling with labor in the kitchen there's not enough staff so this is one of the only products that we sell as a cut specialties are all cut but it's a crest that um so it's convenience for restaurants to use as well uh, but of course with this we also want to do something special which was not there in the market so we have this crazy um uh, variety our celopy variety which is um a special breed of genetics that 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 we have the rights to wow. um or that we developed over time ourselves and that's also one of the reasons why we only sell it cut because we don't want the uh, the seeds to go out in the world we are very proud of that variety because it's really decorative has a really nice flavor um so it, it we hope it stands out above all the other varieties that we have that's cool yeah that's uh that's one thing uh while i had uh while I own Living Earth Farm the last decade, I didn't really have much time to do that kind of uh, crop development. But there was a few seeds that I saved. I, I had pea shoot seeds that had variegation on them. Mm -hmm. 
and I, I, I planted them. I took them out. I planted them and saved the seeds from that. So I still haven't planted them, but I'm hoping to create uh, a new variety of pea shoots that's variegated for microgreens production at some point. This is like a very long-term project. I got way too many things on the go. Um, but I think that would be really cool because it looks almost like it, it was like white. There was one that was white and uh, uh, green and then one that was yellow and green. And the wow. white and green was really beautiful on the leaves. So and, and it seemed to go pretty far until uh, flowering the, the variegation. So I'm hoping it, it, I can stabilize it and have, uh, a, you know, a new variety. That's one thing when you grow so many microgreens, you eventually find the, the, the seeds that have some sort of genetic difference. Yeah, um, so, you know, when you're growing millions of seeds every week, you're bound to, to come by some sort of genetic change. Um, and then you, if you, if you can save them, if you can catch them in time and save them, then you potentially have, you know, new varieties or, or, or of, uh, of just plants in general. But uh, my goal obviously was to create a really beautiful looking microgreen. So I hope that'll, that'll come true, but that's cool that you guys have done the breeding as Make well. Make it a priority. Make it a priority because you, you do everybody a favor. Yeah. 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 No, I, I thought, I thought I have the seeds literally in my kitchen for the last year. You know, I, I think this is the motivation to I, I pretty much what I wanted to do was create the perfect growing environment and make sure I'm there to 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 take care of them. And um, so I've been waiting for the right time to plant them because they're so precious. There's like I think I have like five or six seeds total, so I don't have a lot. Um, but uh, yeah, I just want to make sure it has the right the right environment, the right soil, everything. So it's what it's what we did with this um, reddish. It's a red variety. You see it more common now as well. Yeah. This one yeah. Is is uh, bright wet red with all almost no green in it so these are projects that we're also very keen on to to find out the uh, the, the make sure the varieties are really red so um we have we have a company called sungo seeds who develop the seeds they produce the seeds for us of course we have a long history when it comes to seed production so we do more than 80 percent of all seed production by ourselves so we are right there at the source when we see the field when we see the the, the crops that that will grow the seeds um, so we're always in the lookout for, for rare varieties, uh, that come out of that. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that looked really good. Most of the, the red radish I've seen, it's got, in my opinion, too much green to be considered like a pure red variety. Um, but that, that looked like about the best I've ever seen in terms of, uh, having not much green. So, um, yeah, maybe if you want, you want to touch on a little more about, uh, about the seed company you guys have, I didn't realize that it was 80% of the seeds that you grow are provided by your own company, which is pretty smart vertical integration to ensure quality control. So I'd love to hear more about, about that. Yeah. So, um, the, it's Copper is a family run company, uh, on one side of the family, but we also have another side of the family who have, they also come from the same seed company that, uh, my dad used to work for. So there's a lot of history when it comes to, uh, seed production and the multiplication of seeds, multiplying seeds. So um, um, there's a lot of knowledge that we have that we use to grow our own seeds. Uh, and of course, it's our lifeline. If we don't have seeds, we don't have any product. So we already have for many, many years, we started with growing our own seeds for Coppercrest. And it was kind of within the organization. And then at a certain point, um, the organization got bigger and the seed production was not something that you could do on the side. As you go with growing companies, um, yeah. sometimes you have to say, okay, let's, let's make it, we'll, we'll separate it and we'll make sure it's going to be, um, uh, gets, gets all the focus it, it, it needs and deserves. Uh, so that company is now active for 
um, five, six years maybe. Before that, we were also selling the seeds already to our partners. Um, but it's it's a company that also sets, sells seeds to other growers. It's still quite new. Uh, it's developing itself, but uh, I don't think it's ever even have a, has a website yet. But it's uh, it's getting there because there's there's also very important. Once we had an um, an E. coli scare in in um, in Germany, where quite ignorant they blamed it on sprouts. Uh, years later, they figured out it was not sprouts at all; it was something in the water. But you can imagine if something happens and somebody actually died. Um, that that was not good for the sprouting business, but because we are such a rare product, they don't know how to categorize us. So just to be sure, they said uh, sprouts and uh, cresses, which yeah. was devastating for us. Um, yeah. Which, which with cress, you never have that risk that sprouts would have because these sprouts, they are grown in big drums. They have cross contamination. If there's one thing wrong with a seed, then it will be in that small cup and it will not be able to go to to be such of a, of a high risk. But in, in that time, there's no argu- there's no arguing. It was just uh, the conception at the time. So we find it very important that whoever's growing microgreens is using clean seeds. All the yeah. seeds that we produce uh, and we sell are um, of the highest quality when it comes to, um, you should be able to eat the seeds. So there can no yeah. be no E. coli, salmonella, all those things. They're heavily tested. Uh, we know the farmers that grow the seeds for us. Um, so we do everything within our own control if possible, just to make sure that you get clean seeds. Because um, that's that's essential. If somebody else yeah. uh, messes up, let's so to say, it doesn't follow protocol or just uh, uh, gets somebody sick from microgreens, it's going to damage the entire uh, microgreen branch uh, sector. So I'm always very keen on that. During my time in the US, I was also part of the International Sprout Growers Association, and I saw the the craziness around sprouts. Uh, should not be eaten by elderly or by pregnant people, or it was almost a risk to eat these products. There yeah. was such a... yeah. Meanwhile, yeah. these things are healthy because they have so much microbiology on them. And yes, there is a few that you don't want that will make you sick, but there's sprouts are so, have so much health benefits and they're put in the corner as risky, not for elderly or pregnant people or, yeah, um, which i probably should not say that people should eat that at all. I'm not an expert or live in the U S but, um, the, the, I think it's, it's, a, it's a lot of misinformation on that. So therefore yeah. we also sell seeds because we want to make sure that everybody who wants to get started with microgreens can get clean seeds, quality seeds, get some support, some guidance as well when they start. For sure. Um, I, I've, I've personally seen some very interesting uh, um, out, outbreaks that were misreported in, in the news um, that were just v- very interesting to see it happen mm-hmm. live being in the industry. Um, but the, the sprout industry is kind of just like, not microns, a sprout specifically. It's crazy. When I started 10 years ago, Sprouts were as common as microgreens, and now, like they're all, they're 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 not gone. They're still there, but they're I, I never see when I go to help my health my local health food store. I almost never see anyone buying them. Um, they they take up such a small area of the shelf space now. It's crazy to see how much of that's changed. There is definitely a ton of health benefits. I think microgreens are a better bang for buck health wise. Um, 
but there there is more risk with with sprouts because they're grown in that moist environment and you're eating the roots. But I I, I for uh, the first few years I sold sprouts along with microgreens, um, and then I the more these outbreaks that happened, I was like, I don't think this is worth necessarily the the risk. Um, especially that you know if it taints your 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 company and or the industry it's it's yeah. going to be overall not a great thing for for anyone uh, but it's also unfortunate that they categorize at least in North America I don't know if it's the same over there uh, they categorize sprouts and microgreens in the same category for like regulations for procedures yeah. and it's like they're not the same thing it's like a, a microgreen is much closer to a baby salad green than it is to a sprout in terms of production but they're they're just it's whoever's making these regulations is not informed well enough. Is it the same thing there? Or are they kind of categorized as the same? Uh, sometimes they are. Uh, I think sprouts now more determined what is a sprout, and it's more un more uncommon to figure out what is a microgreen or a cress. Um, I do have to say that that growing sprouts in Europe is heavily regulated, and I have a lot of. Now, these these companies are legit. There's no amateurism. There's no room for amateurism when it comes to sprouting. So it's it's we don't have the, that risk that that or that at least the tenseness around the sprouts that you have in the US, uh, which I know a little bit from experience from many, many yeah. years ago, but, but still. Um, no, we, we, we and, and Europe is, of course, many different countries altogether. So all these countries have their own different view and regulation when it comes to it. So sometimes we're yeah. her, Sometimes we're a sprout, sometimes we're a salad. It's, um, and most of the time you know, we don't really care what, what they categorize it as, as long as we can bring the product into the market. Uh, but there's, there's sometimes that you, it gets frustrating to figure out, um, yeah. how they want to classify you because there's no, no sense in informing them. Yeah, partly. for sure. <laughs> That's, uh, ho hopefully it'll be more, more consistent, but yeah, it's, and, and I, I didn't even think about that in Europe. Every country is going to have, even though they're in the U EU, they're going to have certain things that are regulated separately than EU regulations. But um, if people want to buy seeds for like, because there's, you know, a lot of commercial growers that, you know, listen to this podcast, can, are they able to right now buy seeds from your seed company or is it still kind of in the works in that process? No, it's, it's, it's definitely there. Uh, so I would, I would reach out to corporate crest in general, and we can direct people to the right, um, the right contact person. Uh, cause I don't want to call out the website now. And if I don't know the exact website it's going to be, um, Yeah, for sure. but you should invite, uh, my colleague, uh, on your podcast because he can tell so much about seed production of, of, um, s seeds for microgreens, because that's, that's a whole different ball game. I mean, there's so yeah. much things you can do in the growing cycle. And actually so much nutritional values are determined by the mother plant, not the growing of what we as, as growers do. Uh, the nutritional values of, of these young microgreens are determined in the field of the mother plant, how they are raised and less and less by how we grow them within these seven days or 14 days. That's very insignificant uh, when it comes to nutritional values. And that's a book that we're just opening and we're learning more and more about every year. Uh, but there's, 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 it's, it's not things you should buy from the shelf. In my opinion, there's a lot of things that, that are important to know where the seeds come from, uh, how far they traveled, where they come, where, yeah, what the origin is, for example. Yeah. Uh, but that's, but that's enough promotion about, uh, about a seed company, but, um, um, and, and the last thing is what they offer. Sorry, I continue with the promotion. Uh, what they offer is a lot of knowledge. We made so many mistakes already ourselves. 
we've been in this game for a while, you know that the growing micro yeah. is a learning just has a very steep learning curve. Um, so it's really interesting to 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 find people who do it from passion and from passion move into an actual business. And that's where we, I sometimes see people that get a bit lost. Oh, this is this is going beyond my control. I was able to do this by myself, and now all of a sudden, uh, I need more people to help me out. And that's a phase which is interesting uh, to to jump into. I think. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I definitely, I definitely went through uh, that phase. And you know, the, the the Living Earth Farm was my first business. I kind of did it right out of school. Didn't have much experience and. I had to learn the hard way about, I tried to automate as much as I can, but when it came to eventually hiring staff, I had to learn that whole process of people managing and, and, uh, and it's tough. It's, it's probably, it was probably the toughest part of, of the business, probably because I was so passionate about the, the, the growing side of things and yeah. even the selling side of things like, you know, that, that came more naturally to me, but uh, once a business turns from you doing everything yourself to it's too big, I can't do everything myself. It's a whole different beast of a of a business it'd be helpful for people to, to recognize it as almost two different businesses at that point because they are so dramatically different that it's almost like running a completely different business when you eventually make that switch or transition well and, and, and people are always very eager to jump into a new business or a startup or to get that that energy vibe but then tend to forget that these plants they grow seven days a week you know yeah so it's, it's not something it's that you go from continuously being always aware of the growing cycle and it's not a nine to five uh, process that you have. So yeah, I yeah, understand I that. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I had to, I had to make a big sacrifice earlier. I didn't take a day off for four and a half years. Um, the first, the, when I, when I did everything myself and that was, uh, uh, taught me patience, but also taught me that, you know, there's other ways to, to do it than do everything yourself. And, uh, you know, obviously with, with Microgreens consulting, I'm, I'm, Le the, the learning curve is much faster because I've already done kind of this process once. Yeah. So it's a lot easier to learn the second time than the first time. Um, but it's but also, I, I, sometimes, sometimes we're jealous of, of that smaller scale because uh, it's easy to look at a company of a big size and, oh, that's, that's great. But the, the simplicity you have when it's just a small company and the way it's easy to connect with, if you have a team, to connect with the team because it's very dynamic and energetic at a time. You know your customers still, so there's 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 a certain value in in that phase as well. And I always say it's it's typical Dutch for us to want to be bigger and to sell more and to to grow as a company. Uh, whereas there's there's value in just being a steady supplier and taking care of your local um, restaurants um, with, with by yourself or just a small team. I think that will be dream job as well, you know, because you get to do everything yeah. yourself. There's 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 some romance in that as well for me. Oh, for sure. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. And, and most, uh, at least in North America, most of the migraines industry is mostly small growers because it's so easy to start. A lot of growers yeah. will start in their in their home, get a rack, start growing microgreens, make a few thousand dollars a month sort of thing, and then expand it from there. So it's a really easy business to, to start. And if someone is interested in farming, there's not much else you can do growing oh, food right. and selling food that has that ability where you don't need a ton of capital. You can start it in your house. You don't have to rent a facility or go buy a farm or rent land. So it's very accessible, which is why I think <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's very transformative for people like that. I, I wouldn't be able to start if, if I didn't start in microgreens because they're like, I, I started growing outdoor crops uh, at a farm that was kind of co-op, but it was, you, you pretty much had a small piece of land. You can share equipment, that sort of thing. 
And then I think I made $5,000 uh, my first summer and I, I worked my ass off. Like I worked really hard and I barely made anything. It's like, even back then that didn't even pay for food, you know? So like food you eat didn't even pay for that. So it, it's really tough to be an outdoor farmer. And I think technology plays a really big role in that, in allowing uh, that to happen. But the challenge is if you don't have capital, then you can't afford all of the technology that you necessarily need, right? So it's kind of like a catch-22 there. So microgreens allow you to spend, you know, $1,000, $2,000 on equipment, start growing them, and then scale from there, reinvest. So it's a very unique business proposition in the farming space. Yeah. No, most people in agriculture, they roll into a business because they have family. Uh, they come from a family company or family that, that has that has horticulture business because who finished their education and buys a greenhouse? to start to grow something, you know, it's, it's, uh, yeah. uh the, the, the barrier to step in is actually too high. It's nice and low for, for microgreens, but it's, it's too high to do, to do something else. Yeah. yeah it's very unfortunate. It's, it's actually, I think a very big problem that a lot of that people that aren't in the industry don't realize the, I, I believe the average age of farmers don't call me on this is somewhere around 62 or 63 in, in the U S or Canada. Yeah. And, yeah. um, you know, someone, someone's got to replace them and the next generation doesn't want to be a field farmer driving a tractor around because it's one, it's like, you know, everyone wants to be, you know, a YouTuber, like all the kids want to be a TikTok sensation. Like no one wants to be, yeah. you know, a farmer. And it's really important that Make that's cultivated that kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 Or, you know, be a, be a, a basketball player, which I think has always been the case. I think the, the, the YouTuber is the new like TV star, you know, but it, there, it needs to be more accessible to allow people to get into farming. And I think right now it's, it's very difficult. There's a, like, you know, there's not many programs, at least in Canada that really heavily support people starting farms. So uh, I think more of that is, is, is needed more programs. And, and I think the big, the biggest thing, I think the biggest impact would be to have more, uh, like little tiny grow setups in schools and get people excited about growing plants and horticultural in schools. Cause that's where, um, the, the next generation is built in those or, 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 or grows up in those schools. So if we if you teach them in that point that, hey, this is vertical farming or greenhouse farming is actually a viable career, then more people want to get into it and we'll have less uh, less potential issues with food supply as the baby boomer generation starts retiring. In, uh, in we actually do quite a lot of work in, uh, in trying to get children to 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 be part of the education, the, the growing part of it. So the, the small. Uh gardens we try to support that in in the netherlands as well my dad's a big uh, enforcer on that yeah yeah there is a, there's an interesting movement in uh, in china uh, i saw this this documentary about Qingdao, i think it's called where they moved a lot of um houses away to start horticulture so we have all these chinese uh, traditional greenhouses and they because it's so big they had to move people around away and they're all now living in these apartment flats close to and they were kind of rom romancing the, the the business to to get up early, do your growing, your your harvesting, and then being done at, with work at three o'clock. Uh, you work together with your with your with your wife or with your partner, um, and then you would promote your own products. So a lot of the the growers, and they would be they have less than an, than an hectare, they would promote their own products, and the consumers from their side were able to to look at the products and swipe to whatever they like. So you see all the sort of that gap between, uh, because a lot of the, the, the big growers here, they don't do their own promotion. They have somebody else doing it, but these small growers were doing their own promotion 
And I like that as well. I follow a lot of accounts on, on Instagram when it comes to microgreens. They're really promoting themselves. Yeah. And that's also how origin of horticulture was. You would grow your own product, but you would have a name. So you would stand behind your product, literally and figuratively. So this is the product yeah. I put my name on. If I, if I go to church on Sunday and my product's not good, someone's going to tell me. So that's very important. And, and because, because the Dutch agriculture, let, let, me, let me talk only about the Dutch. We had the auction. We had other companies selling the, the produce. We kind of got disconnected with our end user. So we have tomato growers who are the best efficient growers of tomatoes, but they have zero connection with their end user. The products are not being sold on their own brand. There are uh, private labels for retailers and, and it's absolutely fine. I don't have any judgment on that. But what I love about microgreen growing is that you have that connection with your end user. And even for us doing things at a, at a bigger scale, we still talk to chefs. We have a beautiful kitchen here at Coppercrest where we invite chefs to come over. The team we have, they talk to chefs. They don't, they, the people that do the promotion of, of Coppercrest are chefs. So they have a history of um, being in kitchens. So when they talk to chefs, they have a different type of connection than I would as a marketeer or a grower I would have with a chef. I, I'm, I'm, I love talking to chefs, but within five minutes, I'll make a fool out of myself. <laughs> and these chefs, they have this different connection. I've said, said one of our chefs, I've seen him a whole afternoon with a Japanese chef. They were not able to, to understand each other because they both didn't speak or one of them didn't speak English. Um, but they still have a connection when they're in the kitchen about flavors, about food pairing, about where the products come from. Um, so that's important to always have that connection with the end user. And if you get bigger, that's for me one of the most important things to to make sure you keep that connection with the end users because mm. they will give you feedback, which is far more relevant than the buyer of your product. Because the buyers are going to be focused about price, availability and all those things. Whereas the end user is going to be, is it going to give you feedback on flavor? Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Cause I, I feel that the, I, I kind of ran into that issue where uh, obviously when I started, I was really small. So I was working directly with restaurants and, and, and customers directly. And then as I scaled, I started working more and more with distributors and I kind of lost that connection because I was so focused on production, building the team, expanding that I didn't really go out and find who the end users are. Like I didn't even, at certain points, I didn't even know through distributors who uh, was carrying the products. And then I go to a restaurant and be like, oh, this is where, <laughs> this is where the product's being sold, which is really cool. But at the same time, you lose, you're right. You lose that connection the larger you get. And it's really important for, for those that are listening that are scaling up their microgreens business to keep that connection with the end user, whether it's a chef, the retail store customer, um, direct to consumer customer, because they'll, like you said, they'll give you the best feedback on the product. And if you lose that, then you don't know if your product's actually changing or you've got a bad batch of seed and no yep. one's even trying the product and, and people aren't buying the product, which, which, which is, didn't happen to us in, in, in that scenario, but we, we had trouble getting cilantro seed at one point and, uh, and, and, um, the flavor on this batch of seed we were getting was just not, there was something, something different with it. Um, and, and that's one thing that, uh, which is why I was excited to, um, to talk to you about the seed company that you have is because there is certain varieties I find that are hard to get that consistency. Yeah. Um, and so like, as an example, sunflower is one, and, and there's some great companies, there's high mowing seeds and, you know, Johnny seeds in, in, uh, in the U S that have pretty like very consistent quality sunflower. 
Um, but as an example, in my experience, there's been a lot of inconsistency in certain varieties. And it might just be, I think it's just a difficulty in growing. Um, but having another source of reliable seed, especially knowing that you guys use the seed that you're producing is like uh, an extra verification point that like, this is going to be good quality seed. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so one thing we didn't touch on, which I just I just realized is what your role is uh, at Cobra Crest. So like that was usually like I asked right at the beginning, but um, I was just thinking there as I was mentioning that I didn't like kind of check in on what your role is on a, on a day-to-day or week-to-week basis. So at the moment, I'm a commercial director of Cobra Crest. So meaning I'm, I'm um, responsible for the commercial part, but I, I call it marketing. Marketing for us is the entirety of, of what we're doing. Um, also the ambition to be a marketing driven organization instead of production, which is the majority of companies in horticulture uh, have that. So my day-to-day business, it's, uh, it's still a lot. It's a family company. So it's always a little bit extra that you, uh, that you get for free. Let's call it like that. <laughs> um, no, I'm, I'm surrounded with great people. So we have, we have our own communication department. Uh, we have two people doing the, all the graphic designing for corporate crest, the stories, the um the social media so we have a lot of specialists that's a luxury you have when you when you grow as a company um we have a sales team like i said people are active in all the different regions so in the uk scandinavia the Dach region so that's germany uh spain italy and france uh actually just had them over last weekend all the um, all the colleagues which is great because we all have the same passion for food so you can imagine we're having having a great time uh and product management I think one of the most prestigious jobs uh, that we have is to be product manager at Coppercrest to figure out what should be the next variety uh, that we can grow. Uh, because there's a long list uh, of, of things we have on uh, in our backlog, as we call it. Uh, so how to make the right decisions on what to do. Uh, and we also have a very nice uh, hospitality team. So we find it very important. We, we consider ourselves storytellers. Um, that's why I jump on the opportunity to be on your podcast, of course. Uh, because I think it's important to tell the right stories when it comes to food. Um, so we invite a lot of people to come over and visit Coppercrest. We already had this experience. That's how we call it, this, this beautiful kitchen, uh, since 2002. Because when we, when we talked about a product over the phone, and in the business of microgreens, you can, you can relate to that. Oh, I have this beautiful plant. It tastes like... And then people, they have to just take your word on it. It's not how it yeah. works. You need yeah. to let people taste the product. Yes. So we have um, we have plants that you should experience. We have this this vegan oyster that you have to taste. You cannot sell it over the phone. Uh, so these are the things that you you people come over. Mostly chefs, but we do a lot of uh, people that are not commercially motivated for us to to have to host them over um, because we think with stories we can make an impact. So if I would my perfect week will be uh, consisting of a lot of uh, storytelling, uh, uh, sharing the word of, of Copper Crest. We have one mission. It's let's change the way we look at food. And we can do it on so many levels. Um, so we have we have a few teams that we are find important. One is the health benefits between plants and, uh, and humans, uh, but also horticulture. Uh, horticulture, we're doing a lot of amazing things in Holland, but still horticulture is a bit uh, underestimated, in my opinion. And I can be very frustrated about it, but it is because of horticulture itself. We are too modest. We don't talk about what we're doing. We have so many beautiful technology, but we like to keep it for ourselves. 
So I think it's important that we talk more about it, become more relevant on a society level, not only in Holland, but but for the bigger part. Um, and youngsters, you know, we have young people that never stepped foot in a greenhouse. That's a golden opportunity to get them excited about the world of plants. So on a regular week, we have uh, every day, there's one or two visiting groups that will awesome. tour, we'll show the greenhouse, we show the technology we use, we show them how to be climate positive, uh, if possible. So we have a lot of stakeholders, so to say, that, that we try to um, tell stories to. That that's amazing. Yeah, I, th I think that's that's so important to connect people to their food. I think there's so much disconnection now, um, and you know, technology can help connect you or it can help disconnect you. It's almost like it, it's a tool, right? So it's how how the tool is being used. And I, I think having more people know what like how the food is grown, where it's coming from, um, I think it's just so impactful. And then that experience, I think, is is really important. Not not just showing how it's grown, but actually tasting the food, I think is is so important. I, I, I came to a point in my business where I, I used to cold call restaurants and 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 I just got to a point where it's like emails, cold calls, you're selling a physical product that gives an yeah. experience to someone. I just I just started going in and just dropping off samples and just like having a quick conversation with the owner, the chef. And that's where when I really started to to have like much stronger success with the farm is yeah. when I when I just went out. And just gave the product because like my goal was to create the best tasting migraine product. So I put a lot of time and effort into R&D and all that stuff. Um, but people couldn't taste that. And it's very hard. It's hard to explain that well. Um, and you, obviously storytelling is a part of that. Um, but actually having the experience of trying these products, especially ones that that are uncommon. Like I would have loved to try that. Uh, the little um, I can't remember what it was called. The little, yeah. The, yeah. I would have loved to try, to try that. Um, so yeah, like even I, I would love to go to to um, to visit the facility in, in New York. I'll actually be in Boston in the spring, so maybe maybe I can do a tour there um, and and, and film it if there's if there's interest in that. And then sh you know just just share more of what's available and what's possible with yeah. with migraines. I think is is really valuable. And that's one thing I really appreciate about our initial conversation we had um, before we we filmed the podcast um, a few weeks ago was how much focus you guys have on collaboration. I think there's this really unfortunate mindset in the vertical farming space that everyone wants to own the technology and everyone wants to keep it behind a closed curtain. And I really appreciate how you guys are so focused on collaboration. I think this is how we move forward as an industry, how we move forward as a society is to do more collaboration instead of hiding things like creating a technology and being like, okay, this technology is only available for me and no one else can have this technology. I think that collaboration is much more powerful uh, for, for everyone involved. And I think there's so many benefits to that that are beyond simple, like comprehension that I can explain in a couple of minutes. But um, I'm really glad that you guys have that approach to, to business. It's, it's I think, much healthier and uh, better for society. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we're, 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 we make beautiful products. I mean, there's nobody can be against uh, eating more microgreens, therefore producing more microgreens. So um there's so, still such a huge market and still so much awareness still to be created around not just microgreens but just edible plants you know we we know so little about what we consume on a daily we, we learn we, we we are not technology is available information available we learn new stuff every day but i'm very confident that on the topic of food and edible plants being vegetables fruits or whatever we know less of it day by day 
we are losing knowledge when it comes to what we can eat. Because we used to have this wide spectrum. We used to be able to survive in nature and just yeah. gathering, harvest gathering, figuring out what we, what we can eat. And we're losing more and more knowledge now. Um, and I'm not talking about kids don't know where their food comes from. It's, it's, it's us adults um, that know less about food. There's so much variety, but we just choose to consume whatever is widely available. Yeah. That's why we only have a few varieties of lettuce that we know. And we have the illusion of choice that we think, oh, I can have five varieties of lettuce to, to yeah. Meanwhile, there's so much plants that are still out there that we never tried or forgot about. So um, again, the mission, let's change the way we look at food, is really about bringing that, that knowledge back to, to everybody uh, and to appreciate that type of food more. For sure. Yeah. I, I'm a, I love fruit. Fruit is like my go-to kind of, kind of, uh, thing. And there's this, this YouTuber that, uh, was on the, on the hunt to try every single piece of fruit available or every variety of fruit in the world. And at first he thought there was like 10,000 varieties or something like this is not just commercial, like what's, what, what can be grown and eaten. Uh, and he traveled like many, many countries and got to a thousand. So he tried a thousand different different fruits. It took a decade for him to try a thousand different fruits. Uh, and then he found out that there's actually not 10,000. There's about a rut, like, and we don't know actually, right? Cause there's so many things being discovered in, in, in the jungles and things that, cause there's, if to know if something's edible, someone's got to try it and then hopefully not get sick. Right. So there's still a lot of, a lot of plants that people, you know, haven't discovered yet, or same thing with bacteria and insects. Like there's always new discoveries of, of, of new sure. fruits, new plants. Uh, and there's, and you're right about the commercialization kind of take, making a step backwards in that sense, because while we have so much abundance, we have abundance in very limited varieties because that's what is grown commercially, right? Like an average person can't go buy a variety of tomato that they've never seen before, you know, like, so it's gotta be available for people. Otherwise either that, or they're going to grow it themselves and, and go through well, the process. That's, that's what I love with, with, with the target audience that we have as Copper Crest, because these are chefs traditionally in the high-end gastronomy. Uh, now we serve all types of um, uh, kitchens, but they have the opportunity to shape the way we eat in the future. Mm. So there's, there's varieties that were unique, uh, like rocket salad. Uh, I think you and I are both too young to, to experience that. But the first rocket salad that was, was served was served by restaurants. And this was a unique innovation. Well, now rocket salad you can buy by the kilo yeah, uh, yeah. For, for, for at a discount if you want. So there's there's certain life cycles that plants go to. Um, and I think that that we're kind of stagnant for the last 20 years of, of product innovation when it comes to to bring it to consumer. Or ex to talk about Europe, I was very proud to see microgreen salads uh, in Whole Foods at Toronto. That was for me, uh, we don't have that yet still in, um, um, well, it might, it, it slowly is getting there, but not yeah. on a big scale. So those type of really innovations from, from products uh, are important, but the, the big R&D projects or the budgets, they go to products that you can actually own and you cannot own rocket salad. You cannot own uh, reddish, you know, it's, it's something that's from all of us. So yeah. how can you create traction behind it to bring it out? And that's, again, the collaboration. You know, everybody who's growing microgreens is, is a partner in making sure that people are more aware of these plants. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think there's, there's one uh, 
a common misconception I, I get a lot, which is like, if there's gonna, if there's more microgreen growers, then there there's more competition between people trying to sell the market. But people don't realize that the, that by having more growers creates a bigger market. And that, that's one thing that, that is, is, uh, you don't realize until you kind of see it happen. Uh, and I've seen, you know, obviously I'm sure you've seen it happen. I've seen it happen over the last, you know, decade and, and, or so, uh, how much bigger the market is because there's more growers growing it, selling it, marketing their own product is, is why the market has, has changed. So, uh, oftentimes, uh, you, you, a lot of people think demand comes first, but often, sometimes, uh, supply comes first. Like you think about the iPhone, there was, they had to create it to have the yeah. demand for it. You can't have the demand for something that people don't know about. So often supply will come first. So the more microgreens that are out there, the more demand will follow that because more people will see these are really healthy. They're, they taste amazing and they're, you can grow them locally instead of having to ship them halfway across the continent, which is, you know, what, what most salad greens are grown in, in, you know, in the Northeast in Canada and the U S it all comes from California, Arizona. So, you know, that's a long distance away to have salad greens uh, shipped when they can be grown locally in a vertical farm or microgreens grown in people's homes or, or in a commercial facility. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so to, to wrap up here, I'd love to hear, I asked this question to everyone and uh, I'd love to hear if you I would have worked more with, um, real data, um, because it's, it's always tricky to, to, we do things in a, every year has a certain flow. And we know, oh, this Christmas demand is higher, so we need to sow a little bit more. And uh, what we've learned recently, and we're still taking taking the, the growing curves of certain products from five years ago, that keeping track of your data, and there's data in everything, in your sales numbers, in your growing cycles, and all those things, that, that will definitely help you to, to be better organized when you scale up. Um, are you growing 50 grams on a table or 60 grams? Or should it actually be 53 and a half uh, compared to what the yield will be after 10 and, and one third of a day? There's so much to gain from, from that. Um, and it makes you get, get, be better in control. So, of course, on our scale, we do it, we do it a bit bigger, but we look at uh, what food service as an industry is doing, for example. And we're able to use that information also in our planning and when we look ahead in the future. Because the, the market is growing, meaning that everybody who is growing will grow more the coming years. I don't think there's a lot of micro growers who are in decline. And if you want to stay ahead of your growth instead of reacting to it, um, look at the market. Look at the, at, the, at the sales numbers you're doing today. Because uh, I think there's a lot of information in that which could help us. And I started only with that like three, four years ago. Uh, and as when I say I started with that means that I have very good people that help me with that. Um, but the insights are tremendous, useful, very useful for, for us. Um, so going back on, in, in time, that will be one of the things. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I, there's so, there's so the right. I mean, that's also important. I mean, that's, um, when we started, we had no clue what, what. This, the goal was never to have 10 hectares or have so many colleagues. So that was never the goal, um, but it kind of happened. Yeah. 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 I, I'm kind of the same way where, you know, I never, I just wanted to grow food and feed people. And then, you know, your passion turns into something and people catch on to what you're doing sort of thing. And then it just grows naturally. I think you know, it's nice to have goals in, in some sense. Um, but I think if, if I were to go back and think if I set a plan to have, 
my farm be X size. I don't, I don't know if that would have really helped the the situation. Maybe it would have helped me plan to be like, okay, these are the things I need to consider if I'm going to get there. I think it helped in that sense, but I don't think it would have really motivated me because I wasn't I motivated by size. I was motivated by yeah. more impact. And it yeah. seems like you guys are the, are, are the same way, um, which is, which is amazing. Uh, so this, this has been great. Uh, I, and also to touch on the, 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 the data uh, point that you said, I wish I kept more data early on. Um, and especially now with all the, the software with AI, it's going to be really easy if you have good data to put it into, uh, like a, a AI system and just, it'll just give you whatever information you want. It, th that's going to be very soon going to be the reality. So, um, having that data now sets you up for success and those of people that keep the data points, whether it's growing or sales, whatnot, will be at, uh, um, will be at an, an advantage over those that, well, that and, don't. And, so. and it's important to do it in the right order. So knowing the growing cycle and then using the data, because if you start with data without knowing how to grow, not knowing yeah. how that process works or how, how commercially the contact with chefs is, is working, that mm -hmm. it's, then it's not, there's no value in it. That's um, a good point. So it, it starts with, with the experience, but if you have the experience and you want to uh, expand, then there's, there's so much to learn from, uh, from data. Yeah, that, that's a great point for sure. Awesome. So it, it, to wrap up, if listeners want to connect with you or Cobra Crest, what would be the best way for them to find uh, yourself or the company? So they can reach out to me, uh, Stein at corporatecrest.com. Um, I'm not very active on Instagram, but I do have an account which I follow a lot of microgreen growers. So it would be nice to get a shout out on uh, Instagram, which is just Stein Bahn. Um, or LinkedIn works as well. I mean, uh, we're open for uh, all different ways. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. This has been great. I learned, I learned some, some very interesting facts and, uh, and it was great to hear more about what you guys are doing. I think it's awesome, uh, what you guys have built and what's continuing to be built. And, um, I'm excited to see more and more Cobra Crest in the world and hopefully we can make uh, a tour work of, uh, of the uh, facility in New York. And I think that'd be great yeah. to show. To show but I would love to have you here in Holland as well, because what you can see here is, uh, is quite unique because there's a few topics where we haven't really touched yet. There's so much yeah. to talk about, but we're growing stuff underneath the water. Uh, we use the oh. heat from, from, the, from, from the, the ground to heat our greenhouses. We're growing stuff only in the dark now. So there's still so much wow. to, uh, I keep those all as a teaser, uh, but there's so yeah. much more innovation that, 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 that the future will see uh, soon enough. Yeah, but for sure. Awesome. Yeah. Maybe, person. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we can have you have you on for another episode and kind of delve into the the more deeper into the innovations and some of the new things you guys are working on. Yeah, for sure. That would we'll be awesome. Yeah. 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 Awesome. All right. So this has been great. Thanks so much for, for coming on. And uh yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. More than welcome. And um we'll talk soon. Thanks for tuning in to the Microgreens Mastery Podcast. To access a wealth of insights, just click the subscribe button, stay notified about each new episode, and enjoy all of this wisdom for free. If you're ready to supercharge your Microgreens business, visit microgreensconsulting.com for a goldmine of guides and resources. We've transformed thousands of Microgreens businesses, and you're invited to join the success story. 
Let's stay connected. Follow us on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok at Mike Greens Consulting for exclusive content and expert tips and wisdom. If you found this episode insightful, please leave us a review, spread the word, and let's share Mike Green's magic with the world. Until next time, let curiosity fuel your growth and may happiness be your harvest. Happy growing, everyone.